it's really really good to be here today with uh, with Ed Merrow from IPA International. Um, in some ways, it's a shame we're here because uh, we were hoping to have Ed in the UK for a seminar next week on reimagining benchmarking. But thanks to COVID, uh, Ed's in Ed's in the States. Uh, Jonathan and I are here in London. Um, but we thought it'd be a good opportunity just to introduce some of the themes we're hoping to pick up on in the seminar uh, in advance of the rescheduled date, which we hope will happen in March, uh, COVID, COVID permitting. Um, mm. that's, I guess that's quite a big uncertainty. <laughs> I mean, we might talk about uncertainty as we go as we go forward. But perhaps before we begin with the questions in earnest, Ed, could you tell us a little bit about perhaps your background and the work you've been doing with IPA? international over the last well i guess a couple of decades really and mm. yes uh 34 years actually um, <laughs> um ipa uh independent project analysis um benchmarks pro capital projects and capital project systems for industrial companies um our, our primary focus has always been uh, oil chemicals minerals pharmaceuticals companies that spend a great deal of capital to create their business assets. And if they don't spend that capital well, they find themselves out of business or absorbed by others. Um, so over the years, we've seen uh, a number of companies uh, leave the scene. I remember the late great ICI, which I guess oh, yes. is still around, but mm, only kind of. Um, we are a quantitative company so we're, we're very much um empirical benchmarkers we we collect data very very carefully and we collect data with the project team so over the years um we've collected uh, over twenty thousand capital projects with a um, capital value of over five trillion so uh us dollars um, you know, it's quite a lot of money and, and it's been, it's enormously fun. I mean, that's, I, I guess, of all the things I would say about uh, at I, IPA, we, if you love projects, IPA is a, a great place for you because I always say we get to see more projects in a typical year than a typical project manager sees in a career. And the so, best yeah. part of it is we don't have to do them. <laughs> always, always so, be, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, our clientele um, are most of big oil, most of big chemicals, um, big minerals, um, major pharmaceutical companies and so forth. Um, and we work with them to try and improve the way they spend capital. The other thing that we do, and, and to me, it's always been the engine that has made us successful. I have about 50 full-time professionals who do nothing but research on capital project practices, trying to understand what it is that about what we do as owners in particular that will give us better results. Our orientation is very much more to the owner side, to the investor side, than it is to the supply chain. Mm -hmm. That's one of the things I think that um, probably causes a fair amount of um, 
disagreement between uh, um, IPA and the way projects are often approached in Britain, yeah. um, where I, mean, I think you put more emphasis on the contractors and much less emphasis on owners and owner owner behavior. Perhaps, perhaps I can lead us on nicely into you know the, the theme of the seminar because we were down to talk about reimagining benchmarking. Uh, and when and when you and I have spoken before, Ed, you know, you've stressed very much that when you think about I guess the challenge of reimagining benchmarking, at least from a UK perspective, uh, it probably is in that owner space. And there's an important distinction for you between measure between benchmarking those capabilities and benchmarking I guess the outcomes, benchmarking the performance. And perhaps you could tell us a little bit more about that and the, the implications. Well, it's interesting because uh, companies and organizations benchmark for a number of dis different reasons. Uh, some of those reasons are good reasons, and some of those reasons are, um, it's not that they're bad reasons, they're just not very effective reasons. So, for example, uh, I've had um, some companies come to benchmark their capital project system in order to prove how good they are. Nice. Oh, that's dangerous. Okay, um, because you might actually find out how good you are, um, and it might be actually quite disappointing. Um, I have some companies um, that engage in what I would call industrial tourism. Uh, they, they like to go around and chat with people, and um, they call it benchmarking, and and that's fine, and, and it's good for the uh, beleaguered travel industry, I guess, but it's not good for, for much else. Then there are owners who benchmark within the context of their overall quality system. Right. They're, they're trying to integrate benchmarking into continuous improvement. They tend to be very successful in benchmarking. But too many companies and organizations that want to benchmark focus too much on the outcomes of their projects and too little on why am I getting those outcomes. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the thing that I've always believed is, is really critical in benchmarking is to be able to connect what you do and what you get yeah. and and to connect it in a way that's utterly convincing where you can simply look at the data and you can't deny that certain behavior certain practices will give you better results so you so just I, have to have the discipline to do yeah. it so you know on that note i've read your your, your excellent and very readable uh, book on industrial mega projects and there, there is a, there is a you know a, a you know a very clear correlation between you know what you call front end loading, um, and project outcomes. And again, could you perhaps expand a little on that because that seems very crucial in your in your thinking to me, in that book. Right. Um, one of the difficulties in managing capital projects so being the organization responsible for a series of capital projects um, over over time is that you have an enormous lag between the time that you start a project 
and the time that you finally get all of the results of the project in. That that has always been what makes the man. It's it's unlike managing operations. With operations management, you get almost immediate feedback. I mean, in fact, uh, many um, operating managers get real-time yeah. feedback on how they're doing. In capital projects, we don't. And so, if you, if what you do is try to spend your time focusing on outcomes, you're always managing by driving the bus while looking in the rearview mirror. I see. Um, it's never really what's going to happen next. Our focus is we have found over the years that good owners make good projects, that when the owners know how to put together the project, starting <clears throat> with the business objectives um, and then cooperating amongst themselves to, to be coherent in those objectives and then doing the front end preparation. Um, you know, we we always complain that, uh, you know, nothing ever goes according to plan. Well, actually, when it comes to successful mega projects, things actually do go pretty close to plan. But the reason is the plan is workable. That is, the plan is feasible. And what we find with a lot of, of large projects, both public and private, is that the projects have already failed before they started. And before the yeah. before the first shovel was put in the ground, the projects failed. And, and is that why you? Because one of the things I found fascinating in your book was that you know you had a kind of cluster of really really quite successful mega projects, quite a lot of failures. Well, a lot of failures, and, mm -hmm. and very little in the middle. Is this why, why you have this sort of? It's not quite binary, but almost binary uh, distinction. It is. It, it's almost. It's almost bimodal, or the way I put it is, there are precious few solidly mediocre mega projects. They, they they tend to be either very good, or they tend to be really quite horrendous. And the reason is that the projects, large complex projects, tend to come apart on us. They, if the plan that we've created up front. <clears throat> can't really be adhered to because it is too heroic for humans to actually implement. Um, well, the, the project doesn't degrade gracefully. It simply comes apart and the supply chain can't provide what's needed. Uh, we get to fighting with each other. Um, we begin the finger pointing process and uh, we end up, you know, with probably accusing the wrong people of the wrong things, but with a, a mess on our hands. This happens with large complex projects almost two thirds of the time. Um, what I think is remarkable is when you look at the third of projects that are successful, they have so much in common. Now, one of the things they don't have in common is that they are intrinsically easier than the failed projects. No, some of them are enormously complex, very, very challenging projects, but they were put together on the front end 
by their sponsors knowing that the sponsor work was going to be critical to the outcome. The, the, the way I put it is the, the contractors do good projects and bad projects poorly, and that's not a tautology. Mm-hmm. It, it's really the way it goes. We love to blame the contractors for our shortcomings, mm-hmm. and it just doesn't get you good projects. And um, so carry on, Ed, please, please but, carry but on. Okay. Benchmarking is really about understanding deeply how you as a as a sponsor are approaching your projects, whether you are systematically getting all of the needed parts of your organization to cooperate um in in making a successful project and then whether you're following a set of practices that will make the project as resilient as possible i mean look things always happen in execution that are surprises but project management i would argue is the science of planning combined with the art of reacting creatively to surprises. If there are too many surprises, the project management just doesn't work. If you don't do the science part, which is the planning part, then you get overwhelmed with changes. The changes are what simply undermine the effectiveness of your projects. So so I guess just about everybody listening to this is a project professional. And they would all sort of violently agree with you that good planning is as good planning is essential. But you know, you're telling us that it looks like in about two thirds of cases, there's a good, there's plenty of evidence that that's not the case. So what's what's happening? Why aren't why aren't projects doing what there's good evidence they should be doing? And of course, that Andrew is the right question. Okay, I mean, because right. that's, that's the right question. It's quite quite true <laughs> that. As project professionals, we know we should do a good job in preparing the projects. So why don't we? And it it isn't a problem of ignorance. It is a problem of the way that owner organizations function. And they frequently struggle to get all of their needed parts, their functional organization, to actually cooperate with the endeavor. I mean, I'll never forget a wonderful conversation with the CEO of a super major oil company that will remain unnamed. Um, And he asked me why they were struggling with their large projects. Um, And I had described how to do projects well and so forth, and his comment was, um, well, that's rather banal. Um, I thought that was kind of over the over the top, but nonetheless. <laughs> um, yeah, but, but then I said, look, you can't do your projects because you can't cooperate with yourself. And I'll never forget, he sat there absolutely still and said, yeah, that's right. Yeah. And, and that's the problem. OK, and you see, that's where I think the missing ingredient and, and 
the, the more I've, I've seen projects, the more I've thought about it. The missing ingredient in large complex projects is they require leaders rather than project managers. Yeah. Project managers tend to be um, quite transactional. Um, project managers are very, very good at organizing things. They're very, very good at getting uh, assignments made in the right order and so forth. The large complex projects need leadership that can induce people to cooperate. I've always thought when when you think about the, the term leader, um, you really shouldn't be talking about leadership. You should be talking about the ability to induce followership. And, and you see, a lot of these projects require cooperation from lots of people, some of many of whom outrank the project director, many of whom don't in any way, shape or form. They're not even part of the project director's organization. So the effect is you've got to be able to articulate a vision and make people want to come with you. And I suppose putting trying to pull this back to the, 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 the theme of benchmarking. Can you benchmark that that leadership capability? That sounds quite a hard thing. Actually, you can. It, yeah. And and there are a set of traits and they're observable traits, they're measurable traits um, that are associated with with better leaders. Yeah. Um, one of them is um, what's called emotional intelligence. Mm -hmm. So people who are good at using emotions to get people to cooperate um, People who sc score higher on those scales are better project directors. Plain yeah. and simple. And you, so. and at IPA International, you you benchmark those capabilities. And, and, and we do indeed. We yeah. we benchmark those traits as well. And you see, those traits aren't needed for more routine projects. And unfortunately, the way we promote people is when you're good at a medium-sized project, we tend to promote you into, into doing the very large, difficult projects, and that may or may not be successful. That's the problem. That's the problem. So I guess we're running a little bit short on time, so I'll, I'll kind of bring this back to the UK. Um, okay, um, so um, when you sort of look at the, the UK scene, where hopefully we'll, you'll be with us in, in March, and perhaps particularly thinking about the public sector, uh, you know, we've got a prime minister talking about build, build, build. We've got a couple of mega projects like HS2 still running, or Crossrail is still running as well. What do you what do you see when you look at the UK when you compare it to good practices around the world in your in your database? I guess the one the one characteristic of the UK that that causes me a certain amount of uh, angst is that I think there's a tendency on the part of project sponsors to think of themselves as clients. In fact, that's typically the, the word that is used. And I think that's really the wrong orientation. You are, as the sponsor of a project, you are the owner. It belongs to you. It is your responsibility and accountability. So be private 
Republic makes no difference at all in that regard. It's absolutely essential that you be able to act as an owner. And that's really it. what we benchmark above all else is that owner behavior. And perhaps, perhaps to finish, are there perhaps one, two, three bullet points you would say of the absolute key capabilities to be a, a good, capable owner? Num number one, be able to form coherent objectives for the project. Now, and when I say coherent, I mean frequently objectives are all clear as can be, but they don't cohere, which is to say taken together, they make no sense. So they contain conflicts or they contain targets that can't be achieved by humans. So that's number one. Number two, look at how you're putting your project teams together. We measure that, it's really important. Be sure the right people are there and have the right say at the right time. Mm -hmm. And three, prepare every single project to the same high level of preparation. So that what you transition to a contractor is a project that that contractor can do successfully. When you don't do any of those three things, you end up with you know, very inefficient capital projects. That's great. Well, that's been a fascinating rattle through uh, a, a pretty broad, uh, a pretty broad range of topics. Uh, thanks, Ed. I very much hope we'll see you in the UK I really, again soon. I really do hope that I'll see you in London in in March. Um, Me too. You know, I don't know about you, but I, I like my study here, but I'm getting a little tired of it. Uh, I know exactly how you feel. I'm getting cabin fever as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, cheers, everybody, and thanks a lot for listening.